listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So Romans chapter 4, we're going to be picking up in verse 13 this morning. But I want you to know, you're going to follow through with me this morning. and There are going to be two things that Paul says that seem like outright lies. And so just be warned, it's, you're going to see them going, wait, that doesn't sound quite true, Paul. And we'll talk about what he means and hopefully answer the question, is Paul a liar or not, which obviously he is not. But as you're turning there this morning, I want you to envision this situation. Came up with some technology and you walked through the doors this morning and you crossed under some sensor all of a sudden, everyone in this room knew everything about you. They saw everything that you've done this past week. They have known every single thought that has crossed through your mind. They've known everything you've looked at online. They've known everything that you have spent your money on in your attitudes and Uh, are thoughts behind it. They've known every lie you've thought or told this week. Everything you've thought about someone else that's happened, everybody in this room instantly knew all of that about each other. Now I can imagine that probably nobody here, including me, if that was true. But think about how you would feel about yourself this morning. If that was actually true, that you came in this morning and everyone knew everything about you. Because here's our bottom line this morning. How God sees you, talking about perspective, how God sees you is more important than how you see yourself. And that's going to be absolutely true this morning. How God sees you is more important than how you see yourself. So with that in mind, let's pick up where Paul left off last week in verse 13 of Romans 4. It says, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. So backing up, he's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, so you'll bless the world. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And through your name, all the world will will be blessed. And then what happens, he reaffirms that to Abraham in chapter 15. Remember the scene where he takes him out, has him look at the sky, and he says, if you could number the stars, so will your children be. That Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, and through him the world will be blessed. But then the question has now been, then how does this promise happen? How is it fulfilled? How is this promise kept? Is it kept by obedience to the law, or is it kept by faith? So Paul answers. Did not come, did the law did not come, the promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Because the religious Jews, the Mosaic law to them was God's special revelation. And they're absolutely correct on that. That that was God, they had more revelation than anyone else on the planet. But they believed it was by their obedience to the law that the promise or them being made righteous or justified, it was done 
through their obedience to the law. Well, the problem that they're missing is that when you think about when was the promise made, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, if you studied through the Old Testament, well, then when is the law given? If they're connected, you would think God would say, okay, here's the promise, now here's the law, keep the promise, or keep the law so that the promise is fulfilled. Or he could have done it the other way around. Here's the law, you keep these things, and I promise to do this. Problem is, he, he made the promise in Genesis 12 and 15. Well, the law doesn't come for 430 years later, according to Genesis 3. So Paul's point is this. He's been making it over and over and over again. You're only made right. The promise is only kept through the faith of righteousness. So Paul's going to explain why they were wrong in verse 14. For if it is the adherents or those that live by the law, if that is true, who are able to be heirs or covenant partners, sons of Abraham, if that's true, notice what happens. Faith is nullified and it says the promise is void. So if you can become an heir to the promise, a child of Abraham, by the law, then faith is of no value, it's empty, there's no use for it. But he says, then the promise then, it's invalid, it's absolutely worthless. So why is that true? Why is it that the promise then isn't connected to the obedience? That if you're doing it by obedience, it makes the promise worthless. Because if the only way to be right before God is through obedience, then who gets to be made right? It's only those that can keep the law. So Paul's point is saying, you're not wrong in thinking that if you keep the law, you would be made righteous. He says, you're, you're correct in that. But you're wrong in thinking that you can do it. You're wrong in thinking that you could actually keep the law to make you righteous. Remember last week how we saw Abraham and how they viewed Abraham? They even said that that Abraham had no need to confess. He had uh, done all the law before it was even given. So Paul's going to show them what they're actually doing, why their perspective is wrong. And you're going to get the first statement where Paul's going to say something that seems to be not true. Look at verse 15. For the law brings wrath. And we'll talk about what he means. Then it says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the law, he's saying, can only bring wrath because no one can keep the law. So if you're going to try to keep the law, all you're doing, even on your best day, is all you're doing is storing up more and more wrath for yourself because the law brings no power to transform or immobilize a person to keep it. The only thing the law can do is to show you how desperate and weak and unholy you actually are. Now we can try with all our might to keep the law. But since we cannot, all it is doing is bringing more and more wrath. Because one day, God is going to pour out His wrath on all sin and unrighteousness. But then Paul says... But where there is no law, there is no transgression. And it almost reads as if Paul is saying, if you don't know something's wrong, or you don't know it's a sin, then it's really not your fault. And there's no sin at all. 
If that's the case, I'd be going, then why did God give the law? Why doesn't he just leave that out? And if we don't know we're guilty, then we can't be held accountable for it. And we haven't sinned in the first place. But earlier, Paul has even said back in chapter 1, even the Gentiles, they are without excuse. So meaning, there's a guiltiness whether the law is there or not. So how is this a true statement? How can Paul say, where there is no law, there is no transgression? It's an understanding the word that Paul uses. Because notice, he's not using the word transgression and sin as synonyms. He doesn't say where there is no law, there is no sin. Because that would not be true. And Paul would be a liar and you could not trust your Bibles. But transgression means a specific type of sin. So transgression is knowingly uh, kind of passing beyond the limits of a command or a law. In fact, John Calvin says it this way. He who is not instructed by the written law when he sins is not guilty of so great a transgression as the one who knowingly breaks and transgresses the law of God. So it's like this. Say I'm in the woods one day. Hunting season's almost here. I'm in the woods and I'm on the land that I've got permission to be on and I cross over into someone else's land and I'm guilty of trespassing. Or let's say I'm walking through the woods one day and I look up and I see some trees and there's a sign that says private property posted, keep out. And I continue on. See, the difference is now I'm still guilty of trespassing, but now I'm a transgressor. I knowingly, willingly, explicitly broke a law that I was aware of. So knowing the law makes someone doubly guilty. Everyone is guilty, he says, without excuse. But because the Jews had the written law, they are held to a greater accountability. But Paul's point is that to become an heir of the promise, it's not by the law because no one can keep it. And all you're doing is storing up more and more wrath. The law can only bring that about because no one is capable of keeping the law. Well, then Paul's going to explain, then how do you become an heir of the promise, a child of Abraham. And look at verse 16. That, since no one can keep the law, no one is able to do it, you're just storing up more and more wrath, therefore it has to depend on something else. It depends on faith. That it's through faith. And how many times have we heard Paul say this, speaking about how we're made right before God? But I think it's important to pause for just a moment, just to make sure we're clear. Because we, we talk about this idea of being justified, or we have through the book of Romans, or this idea of being righteous. And what we're doing, we're kind of talking about two different things when it comes to salvation. And I think we err when we focus on one and exclude the other. Because in order for salvation to happen, and that could be including eternal life, being right, right before God, two things must happen. One, you must have your sins forgiven. And we talk about the idea of forgiveness, confessing, repenting. And it's the picture of Jesus Christ on the cross, dying and paying the price for our sins. And we talk a lot about the idea that's where forgiveness happens. When Christ died the death, 
that I deserved. But there's something else that you need in order for all of those things to happen. Eternal life, being made right before God, there's something else you need. You don't just need all your negatives canceled out, your sins paid for. In order to be in God's presence, there's a holiness, there's a righteousness that we must have. So it's not enough just to have all your sins forgiven. There is a righteousness, a holiness that you need that we could never obtain on our own. In fact, Martin Luther calls it an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes outside ourselves. If we don't have this righteousness that we need, then where do we get it? And that's what he's talking about when he continues on in verse 16. For it is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent or the ones that keep the law, but also to the ones who shares the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He says the promise is only available by grace. The only way it can even be guaranteed if it's based on grace, something that we don't deserve and could never earn. So not only is the promise outside our grasp of obtaining on our own through our obedience, then it cannot be guaranteed because we could never do enough. He says it's only by faith. And notice how he includes everyone, those under the law, the Jews, and also those that are not the Gentiles. But here's something I thought about this week. I thought about Abraham standing outside that tent. God telling him, Abraham, look at the stars. If you could count them, so will your offspring, so will your heirs be. And so Abraham, when he's talking to him, he's not talking just about his biological biological children. Even though Abraham will have children, he's talking about all of those that will come by faith and be his children. Meaning that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've believed and you're trusting in Him alone for salvation, that that is the righteousness that you're looking to, then you were represented in the sky that night. As Abraham looked out at those stars, in some way, somehow, you were represented there. So Paul is now going to talk about Abraham's faith. And this is, I think, where we get into this idea that, man, it's either a real inspiring thing or you look at it and it's very disheartening. Look at verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So Abraham, in hope, believed Against hope. Or yours might say, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. What in the world does that mean? It means that Abraham looked at himself. He looked at his wife. He looked at his situation. He looked at what he could see. He looked at his all the things, and it seemed absolutely hopeless. But Abraham hoped 
against all the things that he could absolutely hope in. That he believed, he trusted, when everything he could see was telling him that it was absolutely impossible. So then let me ask you, is that the kind of faith that you want? I know for me, my faith is not very strong at times. It doesn't take much for me, for things to happen, and it seems like it's all come crashing down. I'm wondering, is this even worth it? Why am I continuing to do this thing? Why am I continuing to believe? Nothing seems to be working out. Well, then Paul says the second thing that's hard to believe. And he did not weaken in faith. When he considered his body, notice what he saw. He says it was as good as dead. Maybe you feel like that some mornings as you get older. Everything hurts and creaks and as you get up in the morning. But he says his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And then he looks at his wife. And he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You see, for the promise to happen... One thing must take place. Abraham must have a son. But he looks at himself. He's almost 100 years old. He's as good as dead. He looks at Sarah and he says when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now that's a very polite way of saying something. It does not mean that she was just unable to have children. It doesn't mean that she was just struggling with infertility. It doesn't just mean that her womb was sick or that her womb wasn't working properly. It means her womb was full of death. And barrenness is just a really polite way of saying that. But notice what it says about Abraham's faith. It did not weaken. When he considered himself, he considered his wife. He's as good as dead. She is full of death. It says that he did not weaken in the faith. Then Paul says something that really causes us to pause, I think. So going back, he says, he believed or he hoped, he believed against hope, against all hope, in hope Abraham believed, he did not weaken. And then in verse 20 he says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. So he hoped against hope, he did not weaken in the faith, and now he did not waver. Now I go, hold on. When I read about Abraham's life, I go, he did waver. And his faith is not perfect. You go back to Genesis 15. He questions God about the promise. That seems like wavering, that seems like doubt to me. In Genesis 12, he lied about who Sarah was. That seems like there's not a lot of faith there in God to protect him. In Genesis 16, he tried to bring about the promise that God made him a child by taking things into his own hands and taking Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. Sure seems like wavering and doubt to me. In fact, Abraham, he did not always live out his faith. His obedience, it wasn't perfect. He absolutely did waver. So how can Paul write, he hoped against hope, he did not weaken in faith, and he did not waver? How can Paul say something like that and not be a liar? 
Well, we'll talk about it in just a moment, but keep going. But he grew strong in his faith. And there's two things. Notice how he does it. He gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So with many doubts, many questions, a faith that we read did waver. It says he grew stronger in his faith. Well, if you want to grow stronger in your faith, look at Abraham's example. Notice what he did. It says he gave glory to God. So what does that mean? One, I think it's to realize God is God and we are not. That God is in absolute control and He is the only one worthy of any type of praise. So I think Abraham gave credit where credit was due. He recognized who God was. He praised God. And that's how he was giving glory to God. And when he did that, his faith strengthened. But there's another thing. It's not hidden But it's a little less obvious. It's in the words, fully convinced. And what that gives the the word picture of is there was a time that he wasn't fully convinced. There's a journey that happens to where he is now fully convinced of something. In order for that to happen, he looks at his body and it's as good as dead. He looks at his wife and she's in the same boat. But look back at verse 17 about what Paul says about who God is. He says he is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. That God is the only one that can give life to the dead and call things into existence, those that are not already there. And it's this picture that if that is true, there's a time where Abraham believed, but he's not fully convinced. And there's this journey, this battle that goes on in his mind that one time he is now finds some place that he is fully convinced of something. Well, how does that happen? I think that Abraham took that truth and he beat it into his mind toward that his heart finally believed it. When the doubts came, that I know the God that can bring life out of death. When the wavering was happening, but I know the God that can bring things into existence that don't already exist. And he fought the battle in his mind. As one person once said, that we need to stop listening to ourselves and start preaching to ourselves more often. That he fought the battle in his mind where he could say he's now fully convinced. Well, then Paul gives the exclamation point. That, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. Because Abraham believed God. And it says then righteousness was counted, or you could say credited to him. So now, let's now answer the question. How can Paul say, Abraham, he never, ever wavered. Well, I think it's all about perspective. Because what would happen if Abraham walked through that thing we put in place? We would all see all of these things about Abraham. 
We'd see all the disobedience. We'd see all the thoughts. We'd see all the wavering. We'd see all the doubts that are going on in his mind. We would see the distrust. But that's now how God sees Abraham. Back in chapter 15, when God declared Abraham righteous, from that point on, that is the only way God could see him. When Abraham first believed, from that point on, there was nothing that could ever happen that God would see Abraham any other way. And why is that? It's because justification, being declared right, is not a process of transformation that we have to go through. Justification of being declared right is a once and for all pronouncement over us. And once it's pronounced, it can never, ever change. That once declared righteous, always righteous in God's eyes. So then Paul gives some incredible news. Look at the last three verses. But the words, it was counted to him. Notice who it's for. We're not written for his sake alone, but for yours also. It will be counted to us who believed or believe in him. And notice who? Who raised him from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So this miracle of being, of being righteous, he's saying it's not just for Abraham, it's for anyone who will believe. And we see the two things that we need for salvation are only possible through Jesus Christ. To have our sins forgiven and to be granted the righteousness that we lack. So let me draw a couple of points of application this morning. The first is dead cannot create life. Dead cannot do that. Think about the promise that God made to Abraham. It was 25 years later that God fulfilled that promise. Why did God wait so long? God could have made the promise in the next day. He could have fulfilled it right then when they were much younger. You know, had much more energy to raise the children. But he waits until Abraham is as good as dead and Sarah is full of death. Well, I believe God was waiting. He was delaying so that all natural strength and human capability were gone. He was waiting so that the only hope was for someone that could give life where there was only death. That God was waiting so that their only hope would be in someone that could bring things into existence where they did not already exist. That he was waiting so that the only thing they could hope in was God. He was waiting until there was absolutely nothing they could rely upon. There was no treatment. There was nothing else they could do. I think the same is for us. God is waiting until the sinner is dead and unable to help himself. And the reality is they're already dead. Sometimes he's just waiting for them to recognize it. That the only, as long as a lost sinner thinks they're strong enough to do anything to please God or to make themselves right or to save themselves, that person will not be saved by grace. 
It was when Abraham admitted that he was dead, that God's power went in and it worked in him and Sarah. So I believe it is the same with the lost sinner. When they confess that they are spiritually dead and unable to help themselves, God saves. Well, then there's a second thing. It's all about whose perspective we are focusing on. So how in the world could Paul say that Abraham never wavered in his faith when we read account after account after account that he did? It depends on whose perspective you're looking at. You know, from our perspective, Abraham did waver. You can see Abraham doubted. You can even see that Abraham lacked faith. But when Abraham believed in Genesis 15, God counted to him. God declared him righteous. And once God did that, God could not see him any other way. And I think Paul is writing from that perspective. So I want you to know as a believer. That perspective is also true for you. That once you believed and trusted in God. Or through Jesus Christ. To make you right with God. Something amazing happens. Your obedience will never be perfect. Your faith. I promise you it's going to waver. And you will have many, many doubts. But when you stand before God one day, He's going to say, your obedience, Mark, it was perfect. Your faith, and it never wavered. You never once doubted me. Well done. Now, once you know, I'm going to be thinking, no, no, there's, you don't understand, there's no way that could ever be true about me. I mean, just the other day, don't you realize what happened? But if you're in Christ, that's exactly how God sees you because that is how He sees His Son. That once you are declared righteous by faith, God cannot see you any other way. He sees you completely righteous. And do you realize how big of an impact that is. It means when you put your faith and trust in Christ, all of your sins in the past, present, and future, they are totally wiped away. We no longer have to carry around the guilt and the shame of the things that we have done. But you know what it also means? It also means that your greatest sin may still be ahead of you. And he paid for that also. Because justification is not this process of transformation that you have to go through. It is a once and for all declaration that makes it true in spite of you. And so this is my hope and prayer. Is that after realizing how God sees you, that when you walked in this morning, he saw it all. But faith begins when you realize, I am dead. I am beyond hope. And you look and trust to the only one that can bring life out of death. And your faith it is strengthened by focusing on those truths about him, not on you. 
The faith is continuing to believe even despite your doubts, despite your weakness, despite how you're feeling about yourself. And that kind of faith allows you to move beyond what you see in order to experience what you've yet to see. That our faith can then be grounded in this truth that justification and church hear me. It's not a process that you have to go through and work towards. You're declared righteous. And once that happens, it's pronounced over you. And you cannot change that. Remember, the most important thing is not how you see yourself. Because when you walked in here and I walked in here this morning, God saw it all. He saw everything about you. Not just this past week, but all the things. But when he looked at you, he smiled. And he thought, righteous. But it's not because of you. It's because of who is in you. And you are in him. And so how God sees you is more important than how you see yourself. And may that strengthen. May that encourage us. May that grow our faith knowing it doesn't depend on me. Once he declares me righteous, Nothing I do can change that. And I know what you're thinking. Doesn't that mean I can just go do what I want? Well, Paul will answer that shortly. But how God sees you is more important than how you see yourself. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.